Thomas, you can't let up. Your your mind has to go. It's not like in literature where you can, you know, an artist is describing the trees and the birds, right. you know, singing, and your mind has to stay tight on an argument. So when you when you stay with Thomas, that's a work. It's just an absolute work. But in the middle of these two great these two great pillars of the church, I, I'm, I'm not saying that lightly. In the middle of these two great pillars is this little book, you know, by Oethius, and he wrote one of the great tracts on the Trinity. And you've got this little thing. It, I mean, if you, there were a book you could take to an island, this should be one of the several people in the Francis group. One guy who's very, very bright, just an engineer, very bright mind, said it's, and he's read most of the stuff that we've read. He, he really is serious about the reading. He says Boethius is his favorite book. He just, yeah. it's like it grounds you. So I'm really glad to hear you did that. You know, that. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of people have questions um, as to, you know, why do we even pray if God already knows everything? But they need to read the book. <laughs> it, it answers, I mean, it, it gives the answer. Because my yeah. husband was mentioning that the other day. He was like, well, God already knows everything. Why do we, you know, why do we even have to do it? And I'm like, you're going to listen in on the class tonight. <laughs> he's, he's hearing us, so he's going to listen in. <laughs> oh, good for you. Good for you. Connie, put down some laws. Good for you. I Right, that's Good for exactly you. right. Because when he said that, I'm like, no, 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 no. God, God bless. Oh, here he comes. Here he comes. I get a tipsy. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, good for you guys. Good for you guys. God, David K, how are you? Put your audio on. Can you put your audio on, David? Can you put your audio on? Can't hear you. Can't hear you. Got your audio on? Got your just click the audio icon, Dave. Or turn the volume up. <laughs> <laughs> Connie, would you please not do that? Would you not give her any help? God. Stephanie taught me that. I know. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> oh God! <laughs> on my on my tombstone. <laughs> very very simple very simple directions, Doctor right. Alexander. Trying to Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's. Um... David Francis. I'm. Um, Michael, we lost your Marilyn. Marilyn, I see your name, but it, I don't see you, but it's good to see. I hope all everybody's present here, even if your visual's not up. But um, Is the audio on now? Yeah, well, I can hear you. Your visual's not on, but I can hear you. That's you, David, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Good to see you. Good to, Always good to see you and Kay. Um, you guys ready? Yes. Yes? Yes. Um, Steph or um, Maria, I know you're around in Maryland. I see your thing, but let let's get started. Um, we've got a lot to do, and and you know, in one sense, the well, like it's not fair to say it this way, but 
in one sense, Dante's the center of our work together. I, I want to take that back as soon as I say it, but um, mm -hmm. you won't get deeper into our church um, from Dante unless I, I, unless I think you go to Tolkien um, in the modern world that I don't think anybody anybody has looked so directly at evil, so directly at evil, saw the depths of it, saw it in his own soul, um, asked us to have the courage to look at evil in ourselves and answer it and go into the heavens where things are going to happen that you're not going to experience anywhere else in the world. No work of literature, no modern work of literature. I don't know of another work of literature, and I've spent my life in literature, that will get close to doing what Dante does in the Paradiso. It'll be, it'll be an amazing ride for everybody, so I hope everybody stays with it and takes it seriously. Um, so let's, let's, let's start. We've got a, a lot to do. I, I, I really want to do, um, I want to do justice to Boethius' ending. Stephanie's really put the pressure on me here <laughs> again because she said um, it was an amazing ending and I, I don't know that I'm going to live up to that. So, um, you know, Stephanie, I'm going to call on you now in the ending to, for you to explain what it all means. Um, Anyway, let's let's start. It's it's good to see you all again. Genuinely good to see you. I hope I hope um, things are going well for you. I, it's uh, um, when I look at the the turn of our country this last month, it's um, alarming in some ways. Um, I, I know every lots of people have grave hearts. So um, tough times. Any any prayer requests? Bob and Karen, hi. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Thanks. 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 Any prayer requests? Any prayer requests? Yes, I think we ought to add uh, Paul Pollock in again. Cheryl's husband. Cheryl's husband. Cheryl's husband. Yeah, so Cheryl's you used to sit with us in the front of the class. Say his name again. Paul Pollock. Paul. What's going on? David? She, he had a heart surgery about two weeks ago, and he was, uh, the doctor released him to the uh, rehab center on account of the hospital being full of COVID patients. God bless. But he, so he thought it was safer, but then uh, he uh, started to throw blood clots. He's good. He's not, not a very good situation, so please keep him in our prayers. For sure. Um, Kay, is he home now, or where is he? I don't know. He's in the ER at Baylor. Gone. Gone. Any other, any other prayer requests? Um, I'd like to pray for my daughter, Amanda. She uh, works in construction. She took after her dad in, in the field that he was in, and she's an engineer in construction, and uh, it is just so tough. It's just so tough for her right now. She she really wants to find another job. Yeah, yeah. But I, it's just that bad. But I think it's more the the, the team, a part of the team that, you know, it's, it's she's a project manager, 
and the other two guys that are with her is, is who she would have to go to. And those, unfortunately, are the ones that um, kind of give her a hard time. <laughs> so, and she's a strong girl. I mean, yeah, she I, is, I, she, I, she's it, a fighter. I know she is, but she's still, you yeah. know, it just it's just really eating at her right now. Yeah. You tell her for me when you talk with her that she made a huge mistake in not following her in her mother's footsteps. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you tell her that for me. Um, I will, I will. And I, and I hope you don't, I mean, don't mean anything against your husband. Um, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't see the two of you having a child who's not a tough child, so. By, yeah. by the way, I didn't know that. Our, our, our first child, our daughter's name is Amanda. Oh. Um, and... Yeah, she's our middle child. Oh, she's got to do is call her dad and he'll go straighten it out. Yeah. He said all, the, all she has to do is call her dad and he'll go straighten it out. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that. I believe that. Absolutely. Any other prayers? Any other prayers? Um, Bob, my... Uh, I, I mentioned my brother-in-law, John, once before. Uh, he is... Uh, continuing his treatment for leukemia and undergoing, uh, this week, undergoing uh, bone marrow transplant. So, uh, he's uh, hospitalized, of course, and uh, we're all hoping for the best for his, uh, you know, pray every day for his conversion. An avowed atheist. Oh, so. yeah, okay. So it's less his medical condition than his heart and mind that on your mind yes sir yeah 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 good for you Mike good for you um, okay let's start <clears throat> name of the Father Son Holy Spirit um, God <clears throat> Mother Teresa said that she wished God wouldn't trust her so much that Sometimes she felt the weight of his burdens and um, heavy time for all of us, I think, in our country. Um, and I, I hope I'm not misspeaking for people here, but um, we've always valued a limited government and our own freedoms and um, resist, want to resist government taking control where it shouldn't that we enjoy our freedoms, that we believe in each other, even with our prejudices or faults or... Um, it's a dark time, I think, in our history. It has been for years. My own feeling is that in some ways we're like the Israelites. We're going into captivity. And um, I believe pretty strongly it's a chastisement. Um, the condition we're in is something we've allowed. We didn't get here. <laughs> because we were resisting the things we should have. We, we've, in too many ways, got too comfortable with our lives. Pardon us, please, Lord, pardon. Pardon us. Um, strengthen us, renew in us a, a love of our freedoms, um, our belief in ourselves, um, Lincolns of the people, by the people, for the people. Um, we, we trust each other, even with our failings. Um, to make a place, to not have somebody come in and direct us, even in our homes, to tell us in our homes what to do. So, a dark chastisement in my own mind. Strengthen us, please, to stand up um, for the things we believe in. 
Um, I ask a special blessing on everybody in the class. I mean, there are obviously heavy burdens here. I can, Mike's and um, Connie's and um, that, God, I don't know that we always see this sufficiently, that um, you took on a cross in several hours as a God. You endured, endured a horrific, un, in, unimaginable pain um, as a way of offering a help to us that we couldn't find on our own. And you call us to a share in that cross. So these burdens that we suffer from are our share. Help us, each of us, in these burdens, those we love, particularly if they involve somebody turning away from the faith. Answer our prayers. Michael for his brother, John. Help him, please, and um, help Mike to trust that even if he doesn't see the help, you know that, and he certainly hears our prayers for him, for John. Um, I offer them, too, for his son. Um, um, it's a difficult time for families, and I think particularly for children. Um, Paul. I can't remind me, Doc. Just Paul. His, the guy who's got pulmonary who's the his, Who asked? Um, who asked for Paul's prayers? I'm sorry. David. Oh, David and Kate. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Dave. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, be with Paul. God, the it's an unreal world. We're so used to comforts. The chastisements are going on everywhere. Um, here, Doc. Chastisements are going on everywhere. I mean, the world that we knew ten years ago has no resemblance. The the world we're in right now has no resemblance to it. We all the things we took for granted we cannot take for granted. Hospitals don't have room for people who need emergency care. Watch over Paul, um, surrounded with your protection. And let me offer a personal prayer of my own here for everybody because I can feel the grease here. Um, we hope for the best. The best is in another world, not here. So if people die, help us always to keep our hope that whatever happens here is preparation for freedom from all these sufferings. In some sense, we should be glad for people leaving this world. You know, we go into this thing like this world is the only thing there is, and we want to do everything to save people. <clears throat> Paul said it better. He said, I don't, he said, I don't even want to leave this world. God bless. I don't want to leave this world. Um, he loved Christ more than anybody. And said, I don't want to leave you. Um, he wanted to stay and help, so... We all want to help, all of us. But let us do it in a spirit of knowing that um, you are watching all these things, you know them better than we do, that you're doing something to bring some good out of them, even if we don't always see them. So my prayer in this moment is strengthen in us our faith, our hope, our love. Those are transcendent virtues, not natural, they're transcendent. They ask us, to have hope when there's no reason for hoping, or it's not hope. They ask us to have faith when there's no reason for having faith. They ask us to love when there's no reason to love. So strengthen all of us in those virtues, particularly when we're facing hardships, and more particularly in our family.
because our loves are deepest there and they're more susceptible to wounds. There's, that's where we're, our wounds are gravest. So, um, watch over Amanda. <laughs> In some sense, I feel like she doesn't need our prayers if she's got Connie, but she does. I know she does. Um, she has two good parents. Um, um, watch over that young woman, um, help her to keep her courage, and help her to be fearless in looking for a new job. These things don't have to be set. A door may open to her in another world, and if I'm seeing her mother and father correctly, um, she'll carry gifts into it, and she'll be fine. She'll do well. So give her courage to let go. Put that damn nonsensical world away that's, you know, um, give her hope, put her on a threshold, um, um, and um, help her to trust and see um, an opening here. Um, hold on, you guys, I just, um, so we offer all these prayers. I hope I Remembered everybody there. Um, I'd like to ask prayers for our oldest son Thomas and our middle son Christopher, who are both okay, but they're both struggling with um, serious problems. Um, um, pray for Suzanne and me, and all the all the efforts that we make to um, to do what we should do um, in our family. But um, watch over Thomas and Christopher. Um, bring us all together, please. Um, you call us to a unity um, that we find our strength in being one with you and each other. Help us to answer those things that keep us from being one with each other, um, to join you, um, um, to be glad. The church's words are to be everywhere and always grateful. Give us the courage to do that, no matter what's going on. We offer these prayers in you, Christ, our Lord. Amen. You can probably understand why every once in a while when we're having a family dinner. We haven't had a family dinner in a long time. But when we had a family dinner, it was time for prayers. So now Suzanne was always make faces at me. Um, would you shorten your prayers? Would you shorten your prayers, please? Get on, get on. Food's the, the food's getting cold. So I appreciate your parent, your patience here in these <laughs> these prayers. Okay, okay. Um, hold on, you guys. I just got an email. Somebody's trying to get in. I don't know if I can do this quickly. If I can't, but I'm gonna. I'll be right back. Um, I don't know how to do this. Um. Um. Give me a minute. Sorry, you guys. Oops. Yeah. Um. What's the... Um, 
sorry, I'll be right there. Um, Copy. Send. Oh God, sorry, I'm just How do I send this? Send. <sighs> Doc. Doc. Yeah. Can I send this to you and see if you can send it upstairs? I'm sorry, already didn't hear you. Can you? Um, um, she's she's not getting on. I don't know what's going on. I'm gonna. Can you just take a second upstairs and do what? And send it to her. See if you can send so this. So you're sending me something to forward to her? No, I'm forwarding hers to yours to see if you. Because I don't know that I'm getting through. How will I know how to? It's what there. To send her. It's there. Just forward it. I mean, just. I don't know. Um. I, I don't know that she'll be able to get on. Okay, sorry, sorry, you guys. Let's do um, um, on. Very quickly, if I can. When we met last time, um, remember that Auden has structured his poem around the canonical hours and at, at each hour um, something is happening that corresponds to the life of Christ on Good Friday. So we can imagine Pilate, um, or, yeah, Pilate confronting Christ or Herod confronting Christ early in the day. But all of, all of it leads up to the three o'clock moment when Christ is crucified um, he'll be taken out, and the, the crowds are going to say, um, crucify him, crucify him. And through most of the poem, we're aware of this scapegoat, this victim, and um, the world goes on as if nothing's happening, and the way it's presented makes us aware that the scapegoating mechanism is a part of our lives, that all of us are engaged in some way. Um, without it, civilization couldn't go on. We depend on it, and yet we ignore it and pretend that it doesn't matter. But, but we create scapegoats. We have to find somebody to blame for problems. And remember in, um, in the knowns um, on page 6, what we know to be not possible, though time after time foretold by wild hermits, shaman, sibyl, Gibbering in the trances revealed this thing that was not possible happened. That a God who was immortal 
not subject to mortality, was crucified. That his love for humans was so great that he allowed his mortality to be nailed on a cross. Um, and then remember in Vesters, Vespers, it's the evening prayer service, um, Auden describes these two antitypes, which are really the two poles of our, our human action. We can't escape them. Either we look back to Eden and are satisfied and comfortable with our lives, or we look forward to the New Jerusalem and we're constantly in the midst of violence trying to achieve it. So these two antitypes keep bypassing at cross purposes or looking at each other. They, they remind us of the two poles. And, and I, I want to try to be clear here. I think they're defining. There's nobody outside of that. We're, we're, it's in our nature. Um, but I want to be careful. He presents the two poles. He's not saying that some of us don't have a mixture of the two. I happen to believe we do, but we tend to go off on one extreme or the other. And at the very end of um, Vespers, he says, So with a passing glance, we take the other's posture already. Our steps recede, heading and corrigible each um, to the end evening, whatever's going to happen. Was it simply a fortuitous intersection of life paths, loyal to different fibs, and also a rendezvous of teen accomplices who, in spite of themselves, cannot resist meeting? To remind the other, do both of them at bottom desire truth, of that half of their secret which he would most like to forget, forcing us both, just for a second, um, but for him I could forget the blood, because remember, since he identifies with Eden, he wants nothing to do with revolution or the New Jerusalem or struggling to get this better world. He's already got his world. But for him I could forget the the blood, but for me he could forget the innocence. You know, this innocence we once had in Eden. So both of them hold on to these two conditions and neither one of them in the world is real because we're fallen. So we go through the world carrying an innocence we don't have. People who are wealthy and secure can go through the world as if nothing's wrong. They can enjoy their comfort. They're, they're not willing to admit that there's something wrong. The people who are fighting always for New Jerusalem forget that there are some things that are, that are here that are good. So it's the tension between these two things that define our existence. Um, but for him I could forget the blood, but for me he could forget the innocence, on whose immolation, putting Christ on a cross, call him Abel, that's biblical, Remus, that's Roman, it's secular. Um, call him Abel Remus, who you will, it is one sin offering, the same for all of us. Arcadia's, Utopia's, our dear old bag of a democracy are alike founded. For without the cement of blood, no secular wall will safely stand. We've created this scope, scapegoat mechanism, and it's on the basis of that, constantly blaming, excusing ourselves in order to have the world we want, whether it's looking back or looking forward. So now we come to Compline. Compline, it's the end of the day, Compline, the completion of a day, and this is where we are. The beginning of the poem, remember, we were looking forward to something, the judge set off, the hangman set off, the poet set off, 
And most people just wanted to go through the day so they could get to the end of it and say it was just another ordinary day, except it was Good Friday. And um, what becomes clear is everybody's looking past their, this reality that's right in front of them. So now the immolation, the sacrifice has taken place. It's evening, it's the completion of a day. What do you do on a day like that um, when such an act took place? Okay. And I've asked everybody to try to imagine, remember if you were back in Jerusalem at the time when Christ was crucified, everybody but the disciples would have looked at this guy as a criminal. Hang him, crucify him, hang him. The Jews said it, even though he was their Messiah. Crucify him, crucify him. Who would have seen that they were killing a God? They had no idea. We're worse because we, we know it's a God. And yet we go on about our lives, wanting our comfort or escape from the cross. So now it's evening and the day is over. This event has taken place. And here's what's interesting. The, you know, we've been talking about the ironies of the poem. The poet knows it and yet can't quite make a place for it. Um, it's so like, I think, most of us. Compline. Now, as desire and things desired cease to require attention, as seizing its chance, the body escapes, section by section, to join plants in their chest chaster peace, which is more to its real taste. The body wants comfort. It wants to go like plants in their peace. Body wants to recover itself from a day, from a long day. Plants in their chaster peace, which is more to its real estate. Now a day is its past. Now a day is its past. Its last deed and feeling in should come the instant of recollection when the whole thing makes sense. It comes, but all I recall are doors banging, two housewives scolding, an old man gobbling, a child's wild look of envy, actions, words that could fit any tale, and I fail to see either plot or meaning. I cannot remember a thing between noon and three. The end of the day, all we can feel is overwhelmed by the day. A lot has gone on. We're exhausted. Go to bed. Nothing is with me now but a sound, a heart's rhythm. You can feel its heart beating. A sense of stars leisurely walking around, constellations doing their work. And both talk a language of motion I can measure but not read. Maybe my heart is confessing her part in what happened to us from noon to three. Maybe. That consolation indeed sing of some hilarity beyond. All liking and happening, but knowing. Doc, sorry. If are are you talking with her? Doc. Are you talking with her? Yes. Tell her just Google um, literature's prophecy yeah. and hit the listen now. Where is the listen now button? It's in the middle of the page. Just go to Literature's Prophecy and tell her to hit listen now. Literature'sprophecy.com? Just Literature's Prophecy. Okay. Sorry, reality. <laughs> um, some hilarity belong, all liking, happening, but knowing. I neither know what they know nor what I ought to know, scorning all vain fornications of fancy. 
the overwhelming desires we bring to the world. Now let me blessing them both for the sweetness of their um, cassations, this judgment of courts, accept our separations. But the world goes on. My body's retreating, moving towards sleep. Um, a stride from now will take me into dream. He describes his dream world, these dances and barbaric things. I think it's the unconscious. A magic call to propitiate what happens from noon till three. Old rites which they hide from me. Should I chance say on youths in an oak wood and insulting a white deer, probably a holy object, a sacred object. Bribes nor threats will get them to blab. So the world goes on. He's at sleep. There's, his unconscious is at work, all the dark things. And at the center of his darkness are these things to propitiate something. So even in sleep, if he's trying to escape the crucifixion, he's getting parodies of them, cults propitiating things, you know, appeasing the gods. So as much as we may try to escape this as if we could go to another world, it's always there, even if we don't admit it. Kids will go on honoring. They won't blab on each other. I mean, they're doing what they should do. But everybody's missing this thing, this thing that happened. And then past untruth is one step to nothing. For the end, for me, as for cities, is total absence. What comes to be must go back into non-being for the sake of the equity, the rhythm, past measure, or comprehending. All things came into being. All things must go back. Now here's the conclusion to the evening prayers, okay, as he's approaching sleep and, and unable to recall what happened between noon and three. That crucial moment, it's the moment when Christ was crucified. Can poets, can men in television be saved? It's not easy to believe in unknowable justice. How can we count what happened? Or pray in the name of a love whose name once forgotten, libera me, libera si, dear si, and all poor SOBs who never do anything properly, spare us, we're always making something wrong somewhere, all poor SOBs who never do anything properly, spare us in the youngest day when all are shaken awake, facts are facts, and I shall know exactly what happened today between noon and three, that we too may come to the picnic with nothing to hide, join the dance as it moves in perichoresis, turns about the abiding tree. Now, I don't want to focus on the whole poem. I just want to take a second with the ending. What is this condition or the spare us in our youngest day. When is that, this youngest day? When all are shaken awake, facts are facts, and I shall know, because remember, he's not been able to recall what happened between 12 and 3, and I shall know exactly what happened today between noon and 3, that we too may come to the picnic with nothing to hide, join the dance as it moves in perichoresis, turns about the abiding tree. What is he talking about at the end? What is this pic, pic? Sorry, so go ahead, Connie. Sorry. Be the second coming. Can you flesh? Can you flesh that out? Well, when Jesus comes, and then you know everybody's gonna know everybody's 
sins, you know, and the dead are going to rise and the, the good are rise in the heavens with them and, and that such. Do you all know what the perichoresis is? Mary Jane, we used this when we did Dante. Is it the turning? What's that? The turning? I'm... No. <laughs> the turning point? <laughs> the, yeah. yeah. It's... it's close to that, I think. I'm not sure where, where you're going. Okay. <laughs> Stephanie, what is that? Don't look it up on your... Don't look it up on... Don't anybody Google right now. God, this is the great sin of the modern world. Google. The, the, the whole poem, I mean the laud, the, you know the laud means praise. The poem is going to close on this very early morning prayer. The laud's the praise because you're praising the new day. This is bringing the day to an end, and he's recalling the confusion and chaos, the random, the noise that he can't shake free of. And the irony of that is something just happened that was unforgettable. But all the noise has canceled it out. The kids screaming, the, you know, the fighting going on. All poor SOBs who never do anything right. Spare us um, when all are shaken awake. Facts are facts. And then you'll know that we too may come to the picnic. That is, this is a moment. I mean, I, I think I, I've never put it in, in second coming terms, but I think you're probably right, Connie, that it's that moment when um, everybody is awakened um, and we enter paradise. The banquet. He's using picnic. I mean, everything is so colloquial, it's wonderful. But we join the banquet at that moment, um, dance around the abiding tree, the cross. Perichoresis is the word that the church fathers used to describe. It's the Greek word that um, describes the indwelling of persons. Those of you who've done, done well, you haven't. I mean, I, sorry, I keep getting ahead of myself because those of us that trained St. Francis. Um, came to this late, but everybody's already done Dante. But um, when we do Dante, you'll see that what's at the center of our faith is not just Christ, it's the Trinity, that the Son came down, but what he did was return us. And what we're all called to is to participate in the indwelling of the Trinity. So, so imagine, I, this is not the time, we'll get to it when we do Dante. Imagine the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Dante will make clear from St. Thomas that one of those persons is not less than the other two, or two is not greater than one. We're not in a mathematic, we're not in an earthly world. Every one of them is whole. That's why we say one God, not three. So the, the Father and Son are not greater than the Holy Spirit, even though they're two. They are complete in their godliness as each person. Okay, you have to wrap your head around that because we, we're used to thinking in temporal terms. Two is more than one, right? 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 Two is more than one. But not in the Trinity. So the Trinity 
indwells. Each of the person perfectly indwells with the other. You can't separate them. They're perfect, but they're separate and distinct. So for us as Catholics, we believe in our marriages, we're to enter into that indwelling, to become one with another person. I don't think there's any way to do that without a cross. It scares me to think about what Suzanne has to deal with with me. Um, I know it scares me sometimes when I think what I have to deal with with you know, I mean, we, we can stay apart, and, but the call is one flesh. One flesh. So the great mystery at the center of Christianity is that we remain, this is so against Buddhism and Hinduism, we remain absolutely distinct individuals, and yet our love allows us to indwell perfectly with another, to be one with another. That's the condition of eternity. So a moment will take place when suddenly, what took place between noon and three, the crucifixion of Christ, will become clear. And everybody will join in that picnic, dancing around the tree in perichoresis. Stunning image. Stunning image. Does everybody see it? Do you have any questions about So if you look at the um, Compline, you know, it, it's, it's a, it, once again, it's full of ironies. They're just sharp-edged ironies. The poet is doing everything he can to act as if nothing went on, except it's so clear that he can't forget it. You know, when he says those lines, um, um, when the whole thing makes sense, it all comes, but all I recall are the doors, you know, should come the instant of recollection. He should have a moment. He looks back and says, I see. But all I recall are doors banging, two housewives scolding, an old man gobbling, a child's wild look of envy, actions, words that could fit any tale, and I fail to see either plot or meaning. I cannot remember a thing between noon and three. But a day will come when what happened between noon and three will become clear. In that moment, whatever our sins are, I mean, Connie nailed it, whatever our sins are, we will not be ashamed. We will be grateful. We will all know that we shared in our sin somehow. We'll be glad to be there. With nothing to hide, join the dance as it moves in perichoresis, turns about the abiding tree. Pretty powerful. Any, any questions or comments or did you get her on? She's trying one more time, but she keeps getting into a loop. Funny, I don't know. Yeah. Huh? Any, any, any questions? I can't believe this. Come on. This is not an easy poem. Stephanie, what's your response to this? or the, the direction it's, it's taking. Okay. <laughs> what does that mean? What Can you try to be a little bit more vague? <laughs> Come on, what, what direction? Where are you, what is, what are you, make that clear. Um, leading up to this, 
this there there does seem to be a little bit more hope in a sense at the very end where there really hasn't been that that sense of hope or forethought uh, leading up to Compline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Anybody? Okay. Um, next week we will do um, the laws that will end. This has been an epic poem. I mean, I, you know that what it, what have we been to get for nine months a year now or whatever it's been? All of our lyrics have been really short. This has been a a real test. So, what I'm going to do next week, just so you know, to give us a break, I'm going to go back and do a couple of the short lyrics that was done. I'm going to go do a wind hover probably and. And Schneckenberg's um, Supernatural Love, that poem about the, you know, the woman who looks back at herself when she was four. Um, I'm just going to take some short lyrics to, to give us a break from these, this, you know, this long poem that's because I know it's asked a lot of everybody. So, anyway, we'll finish Lauds um, next, um, the the Hori next week with Lauds. Um, Okay, I've only got a couple of questions about, um, um, oh, good, about um, Boethius, so I'm going to go back. Amanda, I, um, I saw your name. I hope you're on. Did you join us? Yes, just now. Oh, good. I'm not sure what happened. Thank you. No, no, no. I'm glad. I'm genuinely glad. Um, if you can... Press the, the image with the camera. That'll give you a, an audio or a visual of you. And then if you press the when the, there you are. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Good. Um, welcome. Welcome. Good to have you. Thank you. Um, and thank you, too. She walked me through getting yeah, on. Everybody around you, this is the group of misfits. <laughs> I, they've got to be mad. They've got to be half mad to be here. So... I, I I hope you're comfortable with people who don't have it all together. So that would be me. <laughs> anyway, I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Um, you just missed uh, um, our our reading of the lyric. It's a it's a tough long lyric. Um, I don't know what you know about the class, but um, you can go online to Literature's Prophecy and pick up the audio, so you can. Oh, good. Um, you can go back and pick up what we've been doing on Boethius. It's been a remarkable work. It's, it's in one sense, the philosophic basis of our Catholic faith. I, I can't put it more directly. One of the things I'll say just going there is, um, um, at St. Francis, we've been reading um, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. And I took a break in the second chapter to go back to Boethius. Everybody's read it. But I wanted to remind everybody of a realistic philosophy because Lewis is taking it on. The, Lewis is taking on the subjectivist stance of the modern mind. That the modern mind says truth is relative, whatever I believe is true, whatever you believe is true. He's taking that head on. And I wanted to set against that subjectivist view, it's the one that Lewis is attacking or criticizing, an objectivist. So we gone back to Boethius to do a review, so it's it's very much on my mind. But Amanda, you can you can go online and pick up any of this. Um, so thank you. Um, okay, here I I want to get to. I just want to do a quick review of the of the 
the point where we left off because I still had the feeling. I hope. Where are you? Ah, uh, Maria. Are Maria? Maria. I don't see Maria here. I thought she got on. Um, I'm hoping she's here, but I don't see her. Um, you remember that Boise had reached a point where he said, man was created to be happy. That's his natural end. And misery is not something he looks forward to. The, the, the book, Consolation of Philosophy, begins with Boethius is miserable because he's been accused of doing something he didn't do and he's going to be executed. So one of us, when we start complaining at homes, each of us, with our wives or husbands or our problems, and this guy is facing an ultimate problem. He, he is being accused of doing something he didn't do, and on the basis of that, he will be executed. So Boethius is taking the ultimate test case. Here's a guy who's facing death, so it should make us wonder about you know, our response to the complaints we have during the day. And she says to him, the problem with you is you've lost your mind, your memory, and you remember she takes him back. She said, if you don't remember your beginnings and ends, if you don't remember who you are, you won't recover yourself. He's suffering from a case of amnesia. The Greek word that she uses is an, um, anamnesis. Anamnesis. Thanks. I'm glad you're... Anamnesis. <coughs> which in the Greek means returning to recover something. So in the Mass, when Christ says, do this in remembrance of me, that verb is linked to the same word, anamnesis. Do this, recover me. So she's saying, if you don't, if you don't recover a sense of your beginnings and ends, you're going to be lost. You're going to stay, you're going to keep feeling sorry for yourself, you're going to keep being angry. The trouble with you is yourself, it's not the world. It's not because the world's mistreating you. By the way, Connie, you got to take this to your daughter. I, I hope you, our kids can't escape. I mean, if you want to pray for somebody in our family, pray for our kids. Because they've been, they've, been they've been hearing this their whole life. She, uh, Lady Flossie says, the trouble with you, you, stop blaming the world. You've forgotten yourself. Because remember, the whole point is fortune changes. Sometimes good things happen to us, sometimes bad the question is, do we know how to deal with them when they come? Because if we're only happy when we get things the way we want, then there's probably something wrong with it. Remember the Job story is, God allowed Satan. This is the beginning of Job. Satan comes to God. God allowed Satan to test Job. And God lets him do it. And Job loses everything. So the question is, why does God allow bad things happen to good people? And why does he um, let good people or evil people prosper? So she says, the problem with you is you've lost your sense. You've made all these other things the source of your happiness, and they're all flawed. N none of them is intrinsically self-sufficient or lasting. They will all fail. Power, wealth, fame, pleasure, she says, the only thing that is, will answer your desires is God, because God is complete goodness. He's self-sufficient. Nobody created him. He wasn't created by anybody. He is complete in himself. It's only when you love him and you begin to participate in his life, 
that you will be truly happy. Because so long as your happiness rests on these other things, they will always, always disappoint. At some point we won't have our bodies, our bodies will go, at some point we'll lose our wealth, we may lose our reputation, we may lose our jobs, you know, whatever it is, if we've vested ourselves too much in those things, they're all going to disappoint. Now that's where we were, and I was asking the question because she said, if God is good, evil is nothing, and there is no bad fortune. All fortune is good. The problem is we don't see that, because we don't see that a God is at work bringing good out of evil. That's what he's doing all the time. Now the question I thought we hung up on for a little bit was if um, God is evil or good, good, what is evil? And I just want to go back to be sure everybody's clear on that. Um, what is evil? Does evil exist outside of God? I just want to be clear before we go farther. It's absolutely crucial. Let me, let me give two historical notes here to try to make this clear. Two of the great heresies in the early church were Manichaeism and Arianism. Arianism, the claim of Arius was that God or Christ was a special creature, but he wasn't one with the Trinity. So he's like an exalted human being who could have made all the rest of the creatures, but he did not share in the nature of the Trinity. So it took away God's divinity and undermined his humanness. Christ. Christ. So Arian was a major heresy. Another one was Manichaeism. The church has always fought against that. I, I think it's present in the modern Catholic mind. Manichaeism claimed that um, there was an eternal struggle between good and evil. It, eternally locked, unchanging. The, and between spirit and body. So um, <clears throat> spirit was good, <clears throat> the body's evil. And they were locked in this eternal... Um, conflict. <coughs> so Calvinism is touched by a Manichaean belief. He, he looks at the body as depraved, ugly. The Protestant world tends to look at the body as an ugly thing. Christ took on the body. He's God. He took on the body. Catholic believes the body is a glory. One of the things that distinguishes us from the angels is our bodies. The tendency of the modern world is to look down on the body with disgust. It's a bad thing. Sex is a bad thing. So one of the great battles the church faced in, I think it was the 12th, 13th century, was the battle against the Abigensians, Abigensians, who believed that the body was evil and the spirit was good. On the basis of that, they were encouraging Catholics to convert to follow this teaching that they said the church had lost its way and so the church did battle with the Abigensians. It was a major battle, I mean physical battle in war because it posed a direct threat to the Catholic faith. So um, my question here is where is good? How do we understand good? Where does good come from? Is it outside God? Robert, evil. Where Sorry, evil. 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 That, or this, what is evil? Where is it? David. Hey, Bob. Yeah, or so again. That, that's been kind of my 
I've had a, a little bit of a difficulty grasping the teaching of Lady Philosophy that evil is nothing because I, we know that evil deeds exist and that, I mean, I think I, I'm going back to, I don't know if it was C.S. Lewis in uh, Mere Christianity, I think he, he, it was something like that, that evil is a perversion of a good, an evil act is a perversion of a, of a, uh, of a virtue, like abuse is a perversion of power. Power is good, but abuse is a perversion of it. So it's not that it doesn't exist. So that's, that's my... Yeah, no, I'm good. Anybody? Um, David, I've got you on my mind because you and I think particularly, but I know you had a question here. Can you answer Michael's question or can you respond to the question that I'm asking? I think we said that evil was an absence of God. However, in another discussion we had was God was a full circle and he was all good, but the farther you got from the center, the farther you got toward evil. And the last comment that I made was evil was the circumference of the circle as far away from God as you could get. And yeah. yet be within God. Yeah, yeah, good, good. I want everybody to really um, wrestle with this for a second because it's so important for our thinking. Is it clear that evil cannot exist outside of God? Because if it does, we have to ask, then where did evil come from? If God is complete, he doesn't lack anything. If he lacks something, there's something greater than he is. God is being. He is itself. Being itself. There was nothing before, nothing after. He didn't. He wasn't created. He is being. He created us and creation came into time. He made us. But being was always. There was no before, there was no after. There's no before after in God. God is an eternal present. Okay? So if evil exists outside of him, you asked out then where did it come from? If you go there, you're already going in a Manichaean direction because it means there was something that created evil or somehow it existed. Dante's answer to this, St. Thomas's answer to this, okay, this is going to blow, Dante's going to say this. We're going to get to this in the middle of the Purgatorio. If God is all good, where did evil come from? Does anybody want to jump at that? If God is all, he did, he, he did not make Satan bad. I hope everybody's clear on that. He did not make yet Adam even bad. There's nothing he made that was not good. Then where did evil come from? I would say from our own free will, from our turning away from God, basically. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's it. We do it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah, does everybody see that? If that's true, then it means the plenitude of being is God. To turn from God is to turn towards absence, nothingness, privation. That's the direction. The farther we move away from God, the, the more we approach a nothingness in ourselves. Now hold on. Can anybody commit, and because if we're following what Connie said, and I think she's right on it, all of you saw it, can anybody commit an evil act if he doesn't exist. 
if he doesn't share in being, if he, if he isn't. Could Satan have done anything evil if he didn't already share in being? He didn't have an existence. No evil can be done unless there's somebody there to do it. Right? That means there has to be somebody good created in being with a free will who chose to do something evil. I don't know what the share invite is. Is that clear? Evil cannot exist outside of God. When we get to Dante, you're going to find that everybody in hell was a creature made by God. And they're all committing evil. When you get into purgatory, we see people moving out of it. When you watch the people in hell, they're not nothing. But if you compare them with who they could have been as human beings, they are as relatively close to nothingness as a person could be and still be a person. They're almost more like machines. They, they can't stop doing what they're doing. It's like an addiction. It's like they can't stop. In purgatory, people who couldn't stop are struggling to correct their answers. That's what purgatory is. So Dante's response, the church's response is, what, what's the cause of evil? The cause of evil is, hold on to your feet now, don't ever forget this. The cause of evil is love. God, I mean, it goes to Connie's answer. It's just taking it a step farther. God made nothing that wasn't good. Um, what happens when creatures that God made turn away from God is that they make something more important than him, and when they do, they commit evil acts. Evil comes into existence. So let me try to make this graphic if I can. We're going to get this because we're, we're on our way there. So... Boethius is a real good setup. When you get to Dante's Purgatory, here's what you're going to see. In Purgatory, the levels are set up like this. Pride, envy, wrath, not anger, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust. Okay? Pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust. Lust is closest to the earthly paradise because it's the one sin that most resembles love. So here's the division, and this is so important. Anger, envy, wrath are, um, are levels in which people, um, how to put this, loved an evil more than a good. This is so important. This is so basic. I, I mean, I just don't understand why it just doesn't get this anymore, but this is so basic. So in pride, we love something enough to make us want to put somebody down so we can stand above them. When we do that, we commit an evil. We treat another human being like a thing, like we can step on him or hurt him or, you know, the, 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 what's the metaphor in a job? Stepping over somebody, using them or, you know. Is everybody following? Using people so we can advance ourselves? In whatever job. Women can do that in their own jobs. Men can do it. It's not sex-free. Pride means making what we want more important than another human being and putting that person down. 
envy means wanting to see wanting to take something away from a person because we don't have it so when we envy somebody let's say let's say your sisters and you're an older sister and and your your younger sister gets a dress and she spills a stain on it and you're happy right you're glad because you wanted the dress and you didn't get it so envy is is loving the harm to come to another person because they have something we didn't we wanted for ourselves yeah wrath means loving injury to another person because of what that person did to us we want to get back at them is everybody clear so the the three lower terraces are loves devoted to evil in pride and envy and wrath those are evil motives it's like it's it's the principle behind what mike was saying a while ago you know if you power can be a good thing but if you abuse it you're committing a sin the, it's important to see that the, what the motives are are crucial here if you do something in pride or envy or wrath or sloth means not leaving loving something enough and here's the important distinction the lower three levels are love of evils the higher three levels are love of good but excessively avarice is a love of things we want things we make things more important than other human beings we use human beings so we can have the things we want yeah gluttony is loving food more than human beings ourselves we make food more important lust is loving sex more than another person so we use other persons to gratify our sex so the lower stages are love of evils the higher stages are love of natural goods but excessively so love is the cause of evil it's so important to get this there is no evil outside of god evil can't exist unless there's somebody there to do it somebody had to be created the problem is that god made gave the angels and humans free will the our understanding of satan is that when he was because he was the brightest angel he did not want to admit that he was a creature that he owed his dependence on god pride and envy you know he wanted to be god he didn't want to owe his nature to anybody and he rebelled and the and a third of the angels when we go bad we 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 generally go bad because we're too proud too envious too given to wrath too given to avarice we love things too much food too much sex too much so the cause of evil is goodness god made nothing bad um, creatures brought evil into the world um, in the abuse of their free wills all of our sins go back to that one sin when adam and eve disobeyed god turned away from him when they did um, in, evil was introduced into the world and if you watch them i mean um, human beings can um, move farther and farther away from um, their being when when they commit themselves to evil um, have all of you seen the fellowship tokens of fellowship the lord of the rings and those things Sister and I've been watching and loving it. There's this scene in the in the Return of the King when Gollum, who is this, you know, human being, he and a friend were fishing, and his friend discovers a ring, and the two fight, and Smeagol, the the man, kills the man to get the ring. 
he becomes so obsessed with it. He, it the, 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 the chant through the whole movie is, it's mine, it's mine, my precious, mine. It's that possessive love that I want this, I want this. That can so take over us that we lose our nature. We cease to be the creatures that God gave us to be. So, so that's, I think, implied. All I'm, what I'm doing here is flushing, um, flushing um, Boethius out. But I think it's absolutely crucial on this thing about good and evil and what evil is. Evil means a turning away from God. When we do, we lose something of who we are. We don't become the people God gave us to be. Let me stop. Any questions there? Is that all clear? Mike, did that answer your question? Completely. Good. I got it. Good. Okay, I'm going to make this short. The rest of it, she's, um, Boethi said, if God governs everything, um, there's no chance, then how does man have free will? If God sees everything, he's got to foresee everything, um, so he'll know what man is going to do, and he'll predestine him. So a man doesn't have free will. It's at that point that Boethius makes the distinction between how human beings know and God knows. Um, this is all scholastic, so bear with me for a few minutes because this will be the only philosophy we do, but it'll be basic to everything we do. It's actually basic looking back and forward. Lady philosophy says human beings have four faculties um, that they draw on when they know. Senses, imagination, reason, and understanding. The senses can um, grasp the material thing in front of them, the tree and its materiality, okay? Everybody hold on, we meet. I don't lose you right now, even if this is abstract. The imagination knows a thing without its material by its shape. It knows an image. Reason knows the, the form of something, the species. Understanding knows the whole of something and gets close to the way God knows. Now here's what's important. Senses grasp the material thing. Imagine imagination, the image without the matter. Reason can grasp the form of a thing and understanding this great whole. Can reason see, no sorry, can the senses see what reason sees? I hope it's clear that it's obvious. Can the imagination grasp what reason grasps? No. Can reason grasp what the understanding grasps? No. But every higher power can grasp what the lower power does. So if the senses said to the reason, well, here, let me be clear now. Hold on. So when an animal looks at a tree, what does an, what does an animal see that makes his knowledge of that tree different from a human being when a human being looks at a tree? Bob, or I'm Karen, what, Bob, what do you... You want to share that with us, can you? Yeah, <laughs> come on. <laughs> I want to get in on this. Bob said that the dog just thinks I'm going to hike my leg. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Karen. <laughs> He's right on. He's right on. 
Right, but a, but a bird does not see the same thing. Let's just, if we can for a minute, let's just stay general. An animal, pick any, let's pick a dog just for the <laughs> sake of... You know that an animal is only going to see what the senses deliver to the animal, right? A human being is going to see what the senses deliver to him, but he's also going to be able to see the form of the tree. So when a human being looks at a hundred eucalyptus trees, he's going to see a hundred particular trees, but he's also going to see the form eucalyptus. He does the same thing when he sees cars. He can have, so line up a hundred cars. Is the dog going to understand the form of a car? No, because he doesn't have a he doesn't have a rational mind. So a human being can take particular things and they can abstract from it to a universal. So a human being can look at all those trees, even though there's a hundred of them, and see what's universal to all of them. The form, the species. Is that clear? Okay? Okay, here's where it gets hard. So senses can grasp the matter of a thing. The imagination can get the image without the matter. Reason can get the form. Understanding can get a greater whole. Boethius goes on to say, we will be able to answer your question about foreknowledge, how God knows things, if we don't get clear in the difference between how human beings know things and God. So I want to get really clear just for a second here. The senses pick up material things, the imagination, the image, reason, can reason things through, it can look at the trees and suddenly see, ah, ah, they're all the same, we'll call them oak or birch or, right, it can see the form and identify, so it can distinguish a birch from a eucalyptus, right? He can only do that because he's got a notion of a form, he's not, so there's something in us that's an animal, we experience things just the way dogs do, but we have a rational mind. We can apprehend something universal, something that's common to all particular things. And I know that this is a lesson in philosophy 1A, but I, is everybody with me okay? Okay, just when you thought things were easy, now answer this question. Boethius goes on to say, it's important to see what a thing is, a tree, a dog, it's also important to recognize that what we see, everybody hold on here tight, it's important to see that what we see depends on the mode of our knowing, the mode by which we know. So let's go back. Is the mode of knowing of, so take a dog looking at a tree, take a human looking at a tree, Take an angel looking at a tree. Is the mode of knowing the same for each of those creatures? Do they know that tree in the same way? Yeah, I would say no. Yeah, and we, we, I think we're clear on the difference between the way an animal knows the tree and a human, right? But I want to go a step farther, because the, what's the difference between the way a human would know that tree and an angel? Because remember, an angel has no body no senses. Do you all see, before we answer it, that we can't talk about knowledge if we don't know the mode by which somebody knows. Humans are different from animals. Angels are different from humans. 
So if we're going to talk about knowledge, we have to talk about the mode by which we know things. So my question is, if, so there's a tree in front of an animal, a dog, and a human, and an angel. What's the difference between the way the human knows that tree and an angel? Stephanie. <laughs> Anybody? Amanda, are you around? You disappeared. Sorry, I'm here. Do you have an answer? Do you have a thought on that? I would have to... Oh, gosh. I would have to go back to Genesis. And my thought would be that angels were created before humans because the heavens was created in the beginning before humans. So my thought would be that angels have an all-in-one sort of infused knowledge as the first witnesses of creation. And they have a intellect that knows how things are created, but they don't use the senses to know that. They just have an intellectual knowledge. Yeah, they don't have senses to know that way, yeah. Boy, that's good. Wow. Wow. Um, anybody else? If angels don't have senses, then what do they know? What do they grasp? The trees in front of them, what are they seeing? Are they going to see it? Wait, is everybody clear a human being is going to see that tree differently from a dog? So the question I'm asking is, what does an angel see when he looks at a tree because he doesn't have a body, he doesn't have senses? If human reason can grasp the form of a thing, then an angel will only see the form. And but I think it's really interesting if you take what Amanda just said. It seemed I just I mean I she she's going a step beyond where I would have gone, but I think she's right on in it. If angels always have their minds on God because they don't have bodies, they're intellects. Each one is a form of itself. They're a species. Each one is a separate species. They don't have bodies that um, there will be some kind of infused knowledge because of the way they stand in relation to God and they'll bring that to their knowledge of, let's say, a tree. So they're going to see the form of a tree and I'm going out on a limb here. They would see it somehow in its formal brilliance. Matter would not get in the way the way it would for us. And I'm, I'm only saying that matter is not in the way for us because God gave us bodies. That's our glory. That's, you know, the beauty. When you read poets and they help you, to, or a painter, or a muse, uh, when you listen to a, um, a Bach piece, say, we can experience the beauty that comes to us through our senses that are peculiar to us. A, a dog can't, an animal, nobody in the animal kingdom can experience those things the way we can. Let me stop here. Is everybody okay with that? Boethius is establishing that if we're going to talk about knowledge, it's crucial to remember um, you have to distinguish the mode by which somebody knows. Now, at that point, he goes on to say, it's, if we're going to talk about the way God knows and the way we know, we have to make a distinction between perpetuity and eternity. Perpetuity, remember, is timeless moments, one after the other. 
So no sooner does something one moment ahead of us in the future come into us than it's already gone in the past. The most real moment for us is never the future or the past, it's now. It's the present moment, our living in the present, that gives us our most direct link with God. Because in God there is no past or future, there's only an eternal present. Is that okay? We live in perpetuity, moments going on forever, one after another. Something comes into being, it will go out of being. Comes to be, it will pass away. So perpetuity affects the way we see. We see in time, according to our mode as humans. Does God see the same way we do? Is there a past and a future for God? There is no past or future. It's an eternal present. So it, if we're going to talk about God, can God have foreknowledge of anything? <laughs> is there a future for God in his kingdom? There can be no foreknowledge or past knowledge. There is no. When God sees, he sees what is now according to his time, not the way we say things. So go back for a moment. Can the senses see what the imagination sees? Can the imagination see, see what reason sees? I hope everybody's clear. No, they can't. Can we see the way God sees? If he sees an eternity and there's no past or future, everything is, his way of grasping things is infinitely beyond the way we could even begin to think. Yeah? So God doesn't predestine things. He sings, sees things as they are. So man has the free will to do whatever he does. The interesting thing, I mean, here's, here's the wonderful analogy for me. Wait, let me stop. Is that clear? Is that clear? So if we talk about God, God having foreknowledge and so predestining things, we, we have to be careful because in one sense... We're using human ways of thinking to describe something God does when what God does is beyond our description. Can you guys, is that, are we together? Do you guys have a question about that? So, Boethius is saying um, God doesn't predestine things or predetermine. He says things then. So, if somebody's committing a murder... It's necessary that he's committing murder. He's doing that. Does God seeing him predestinate, necessitate that murder? No, it doesn't. He sees it. But if we've been following Boethius, you know that he allows evil, he allows good men to suffer, because he's always trying to help us become better at who we are, working with the punishments, the sufferings we receive, the blessings we receive. So we constantly struggle to get back to him. Here's the interesting thing about that notion. This is a poor analogy, but I can't think of a better. So if God only sees in a present, always, there's no future, past, he is, that's the way he sees. But we're in time, we're in perpetuity. Picture God watching us in a boat going down a river. Going down a river. So he's aware that we're in time, so he can see us in time as a present. That means if he can see us completely the way he does, 
because for him the present is the fullness of time. It seems to me it means that he can intervene or not. He can do something to help. He can, if, if there are robbers around the bend, let's say, he can let the robbers jump us and kill us. He may do something to, you know, to prevent the, the event. Let's say he suddenly gives, let's say Susanna and I are in a boat and she has, suddenly has a thought, um, I need to go to the bathroom, pull over, you know, that she has, so, I mean, who knows? I don't know. What I'm trying to suggest is, um, if God is all goodness, there is no evil outside of him, and um, if he governs everything, it doesn't mean he necessitates our actions. Because there's a difference between the sun, which can't vary, and it's, I mean, there are things that necessarily have to be, that follow a, a preadoring order, they're determined, but he created men and angels with free wills. So we can do things, we can commit evil, we can go against him, because he would rather have us loving him as a choice of ours than forcing us to be something like a machine. So Boethius has laid out the ground for um, answering these questions. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And why does he allow good people to prosper? Because he's working with our free will and it's important to see that he's always good. If he is, then evil is something we bring into the world. He allows it to work with our free wills to help us get better. And remember, he, he, Lady Philosophy's question, he allows hardships to test us, to find out who we are, whether our love is really as good, because sometimes we think we love and we get spoiled. We get soft and want things our way, or you know, who knows what. So Boethius is making a defense. She's helping it to try, if I can try to summarize this for a minute, She's helping Boethius to recover himself. He's feeling sorry for himself. He's mad at the world. Um, she's telling him that the problem's himself. If he really understood who God was, he would not be complaining, he would not be whining, he would not be making the world the way he wants. Because if he did, he'd know he'd lose it. He's going to die. He's going to lose his wealth. His body's going to collapse. We all know that. We're all of an age here. I think we're close enough as an age. Stephanie, you're too young. Yeah. Amanda, you look too, you're too young, but the rest of us here, um, you know, um, those are good things. Wealth, pleasure, um, power, fame, but they're also fleeting. And it's important to never let those things become greater than our love of God. And one of her earlier claims was, the more we struggle to participate in God, to be with him, the more we become like him. And you remember, it, I mean, to go back to Dave's um, recollection of that, remember Boethius described God as being the still point of a circle? Remember, if you look at a circle, the still point is, is simplicity itself. It doesn't move. If you talk to geometricians or mathematicians, you watch a wheel rotating, they will always say the very center of that wheel doesn't move. The farther you get away from it, the faster the wheel moves. 
So the, 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 the more you approach the outside of the wheel, the more you approach fate, getting caught up in the world. The more you approach the center, the more you approach God's stillness, His goodness, the more you're like Him. So the whole call on the part of Lady Boethus is to get Boethius back to God to help him remember where he came from. And it's interesting. In fact, let me end here, unless any of you got any, if, if you've got any questions, we'll take them up. Why does the story end with Lady Philosophy making her argument? Why does she, why does Boethius not take us back to him in the cell with her finishing her argument? Why does he drop us off here the way he does? What's your thoughts about that? Would you mind? I'll take any questions. I mean, you guys have any thoughts about the, you know, the closing argument of Lady Philosophy and um, the question about God's foreknowledge and man's free will, or or so why? You, so, so you wouldn't say they're really that the church doesn't really like the word predestination in the sense that you know, since God knows, even though we are committing these acts as a free will of ours, you know, because we have free will, but he knows who's going to be in heaven. He knows who's going to hell, you know. I don't know, Connie. That I, on, and I'm answering honestly. It's just, I don't know that God knows that. I mean, it, to, to put it that way again says, then he's predestining. I mean, Paul, Paul well, well, I'd be glad to have you. Paul uses the word predestined. You know, I, I just think the church is very careful about it. Calvin doesn't. Calvin, that, to me, it's the most hateful doctrine. I'm not kidding. It's just that anybody could have that thought. It's so disturbing to me. Calvin takes the position that some men are predestined to damnation, that God makes people knowing they'll be... That, to me, is in... Our church does not believe that. That's horrible, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, to, to picture a God like that is to picture a murderer. Why, if, if he made us in his image that we have free will... Why would he create a man who would be who was destined to suffer damnation without even having used his will once? That to me is just a horror. I, I, the the greatest. I mean, one of the greatest things about our church is that it it allows for damnation. I mean, it's saying humans can damn themselves um, right up to the end. Um, Dante's. By the way, Dante is going to answer all of this. It's going to be amazing to see what he does. Um, the important thing to see is if we believe that God is good and there is no bad fortune, what we know is that God is doing everything he can to help. But we also know that there are some people who become so committed to evil, they're not going to turn back. I mean, we just know that there are people like that. So I don't think, I, I mean, Boethius is answering that concern. He's saying, they're not doing that because God predestined them. God may see them. Um, he may do what he can to help, but he's not predestining that evil. Those people are committing that evil against everything that was created in them, you know, to be good, to go back to a good God. The church will not say that. Our church won't. Here's an example. This is just, uh, just it really upsets me. I, I mean, it's hard for me to go back there. We know of somebody, um, we're close to somebody in our family, 
I mean, in some ways still are. She was raised in a covenant family, covenant Bapt, or, uh, Baptist Cal, um, Calvinist. Calvinist, not Baptist. It's virtually the same, like the background's the same. And the assumption, even though the modern Baptist and the fundamentalist is sort of doesn't always believe that, lots, lots do, even though they don't even know it. I mean, they, they don't go back to principles, they're just raised on their beliefs and they but this young woman, at some point in her early adolescence, went to a, um, one of the um, a, um, one of the staff who was probably a psychologist and was there to, you know, advise students. And when she described her, you know, the whatever ordeal she was going through, the guy's comment was something like, "Those are symptoms that you've been damned." Imagine a young woman hearing that. 13, 14, 15, that, you're, that your, your behavior are, are symptoms that you're damned. For anybody to be raised in a dark world like that already makes your world black and white. Um, we, by, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. We just read Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter in which that, that belief actually shapes the way people look at the world. It makes them condemn some because they believe they're what they're doing are signs of damnation. And the fact that they're doing other things are signs that they're among the elect. So the way they go through the world are the saved and the damned. And here's a young girl who, who got that kind of a comment from a church, I mean, a, you know, staff psychologist. Our church would, would never say that. Never. I mean, I'm, sure, I'm assuming, I'm going out on a limb here, I'm assuming that there's some priest who hear confessions, who will say to somebody coming to confession, you're in spiritual danger. What you're doing is putting your, your soul at risk. But no, no priest is going to condemn somebody to damnation. That's because our, wait here, fundamental belief. Second, Fourth Amendment, do not take the Lord's name in vain. That does not mean don't swear. It means don't presume to speak for God. You don't know the ultimate outcome of things. Only God does. We cannot speak about... The church does that in Christ's name, but it's, it's profoundly careful of doing that because it knows what's at stake. I, I don't want to get off... I, wanna, I don't want to lose the focus. Is everybody clear that everything Boethius is doing is helping us to see that God sees things in a way that we don't and it's important to see that that does not take away our free will. That the whole call of our life is towards goodness. And I just want to emphasize what I said at the beginning. Remember, there's not one, one word in the consolation having to do with our faith. Boethius talks nothing about our faith at all. At all. What he's doing is showing how resourceful reason is for defending our faith. That reason and faith go together. Faith is a higher power. It comes from God. But reason is this extraordinary thing if we can use it well. And you know that, according to the book, Boethius is not using reason well at the beginning of the book. She took out it with poetry and literature. Karen, you got something? Stephanie, I would really appreciate a question here. This is too much to 
to leave to leave the way. Um, well, you were asking why does why is it left with Lady Philosophy speaking and not the counterpoint of Boethius? And I kind of felt like this. It's been a conversation back and forth, but now is the time for action. Now is the time to hmm. take that final step to prepare himself for the for the fate that's coming him. Yeah. You know, and she's she's given him all of the information and it's kind of like a parent going okay i've given it to you now now go and do it the whole book has been about going you know that the the conversation the conversation is over now is the time for action yeah yeah i feel pretty much the same way anybody else i feel pretty much the same way i put it a little bit differently the, the way i would describe the action is um it's a dialogue it's a communion i'm going to i'm going to use that word deliberately communion but the nature of it is a cure. Remember, she said, I'm going to cure you. But it's going to have to be slow and painful. And she says, I'm going to have to get tougher as I go along. That you're not ready yet for the tough medicine. And, and then finally, when we get to these questions about chance and free will, and, you know, I mean, those are pretty tough intellectual arguments. So by that time, I think, I think we're supposed to assume Boethius is getting a little bit tougher, a little bit tougher. And, and, and I think you've put it... I mean, you've hit it right on. That so when we get when we get to the end, I think we're to imagine a guy who has the courage, the the strength, to know that it doesn't matter. What matters is the state of his soul, his mind. That he knows that there's this goodness afterwards, so he shouldn't be afraid. Should not be afraid. So the anamnesis. He's recovered himself. He, he's back to being the person God made him to be. He will go to his death. Um, he will be okay. It's a, in that sense, it's a wonderful drama. You know, it's like a, it's not a, I mean, it is philosophic, but it's a, it's a wonderful drama. It's a, you know, it's a real, it's a real life situation. Um, can you speak up? Connie, did your husband get his predestination question answered? Yeah, well, he's upstairs. He's teaching, so oh. I'll, I'll, I'll explain it to him. No, you give him a test. <laughs> I will. You give him a quiz. He doesn't pass him. Tell, tell him he's got to be here next week or whatever. That's right. That's right. So how, does, how would you fit prayer into this? Like a lot of people say, well, why do we even have to pray? So, and, and I know that prayer is when we pray, we're 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 praying basically to accept the will of God. Is does that is that does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's so what good. we should be praying for. Well, wait, no. Well, I was here. Boethius actually uses the word prayer, if I remember correctly, in the last this last third of the book. Uh -huh. He says, if we're doing if we're doing what we should be doing. And we know that God is watching and and working with punishments and rewards, that he's always trying to help us get better. We should always be trying to be good, to be virtuous. That's that's our call here. So he's not we're not in faith, we're in the we're still back in the pagan world, using reason and you know, to be virtuous. But he's 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 revealing something to us that the pagans could never have shown this clearly, but the focus is virtue. That we're to work in being good. But he says very clearly, um, it, it, 
the more we participate in virtue and in goodness, because mm-hmm. the source of that goodness is God, the more we become like him. So the more we work at it, the, the, the more we partake in his nature. That's, this is so close to the Eucharist. The more we participate in it, the more... So the more we pray, I think he uses the word prayer in that, the more we pray, two things, because I don't, I don't think it's just doing God's will, although clearly that's a part of it, mm-hmm. that it's asking God to give his will to things that we love. You know, I mean, we, we may be praying that somebody survive an operation, and we may end by saying, but your will be done. But God's going to hear us saying, save this man. Because Christ did it. Peter did it. The disciples went around curing all that, you know, they didn't just say, I mean, they, they were, the, the Protestant modern mind is too resigned. It's too passive. The disciples went out, they were curing people. They didn't walk by because they were saying, let God do it. You know, so uh, there, there had to be instances when the disciples were praying that God do something all the time, um, carrying in their hearts their knowledge that his will was more important because he would, they could trust in their faith, they could trust that he was doing something they couldn't see. So my own response to your question is there's a tension there that, that, we're asked to actively pray for the things we love, that God um, be with us when we're trying to make our love real, particularly for those things we love, the people we love, or you know whatever's going on. And also saying, you know, your will be done, um, mm-hmm. be- because we trust that no matter what goes on here, He's. So I, I think, you know, it's, to me it's just sort of amazing. Boethius doesn't go into the church, and yet everything that he talks about, it just is. I mean, it, it's, it's like reason is, you know, if, if you look at the church as a place of faith and holiness, I just think it's such a mistake to leave reason out like it belongs to the world. That our church is distinguished because of its, its, its knowing that faith and reason go together. So when we step inside of a church, it's not a world removed from reason. It's a world in which reason should be lit up, you know, luminous everywhere. It can be the artwork, it can be the music. When we go to Mass in the morning, I, I think I've got a bad reputation for this in our church. When we go to church in the morning, I go up and visit people. I mean, I just, you know, I'm glad to see them. Um, church is home. When I first took up my teaching job and when we were on our way to the Catholic Church and I had a job at a Catholic college in California, the sister who was the academic dean, <laughs> when you know we went to church in the morning before classes, so we were regularly there, she would always be up, you know, talking and, I mean, it was so clear she was at home. You know, she just, she wasn't being, she was the most reverent person, one of the most reverent people I've ever met in my life. But she was, she was just, you know, I think the wall between the world of reason and church was, was more, what's the word, what's that? Yeah, porous is, but, you know, there was this interaction between them and, 
So reason is everywhere there. It's infused. It's um, so everything that Buiti is 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 describing, I think, actually assumes a faith, or he wouldn't say every all of our efforts to try to be good um, are a participation in God's goodness because He's the source of goodness. The more we do it, the more we grow in Him. The more we grow closer to that center. You know, the Deva was talking about that circle. Um, the more we become like him. My own feeling, I mean, going way beyond, I also believe, so this is a note of realism. This may be too sobering right now. The closer we get to God, the more we're going to be tempted by evil things. So I, I don't think getting closer to the circle eases people's lives or simplifies them. In lots of ways, it'll make it harder. I mean, the, the, most of the saints, or so many of the saints were martyred precisely for that reason. The, the more you struggle with good, I think the more... Um, um, Bishop Barron had a, a wonderful image that he used to describe it in some of his works, and he took it from an early church father. He said, when you're in a church and you're back away from the window and the sun's not out yet or something, you can look at a, a church window and you don't see the spots very well. And you get closer to the window and you start seeing smudges or, you know, the dirt on the window. But when the light goes on behind the window, then all those spots become stark. The closer you approach Christ, the more in the light you are, the more you're going to be dealing with darker things. So I don't I don't want to give any sense here that the approach to that center, you know, where God is easy or just philosophical, because I think, I don't think it is. I think it's really hard. Mm -hmm. Wait, Doc's got to, go ahead, can you say it? Connie, I was thinking about your question about prayer. Uh-huh. And why do we bother to pray? And, I mean, there are a number of answers. One is God asked us to. Um, and I think that's because it it helps form the goodness that Robert's talking about in us. I mean, it helps us to conform to him. The other thing I think when I think about that question is that... Um, you want to come it, over, Doug? No. Um, it, it goes back to the question of how God sees and how we see that um, our free will and our prayers are part of time. So we see in the dimension of time. God doesn't see in time. So in one sense, since he sees everything all at once, he knows our prayers before we even say them. He, know, he knows everything all at once. Um, it, I was trying to explain it to Robert last night when I was thinking about it and, and said that it's like we live in a three-dimensional world and that's all we know, that's all we can see. Um, but God lives in a four, five, six, I don't know how many dimensions he sees. Um, mm -hmm. but, but he sees something entirely different. I mean, Take this to prayer. So what is it? Why why do we pray? Because, well, we we pray because we've been asked to pray. Um, 
and and that is important for us because it helps us conform ourselves to Christ and to what's been asked of us. We're acknowledging our helplessness and God's power. Um, so I think that's why we pray. But I think <clears throat> it's true that God knows our prayers before we say them. <clears throat> and he knows what the outcome is going to be. So we're predestined? But it, no, but we're not because... <laughs> But we're not because God doesn't. God doesn't function in time. We're gonna, you're we're gonna make fun of me. I'm <laughs> oh, you big chicken! Come back here. Wait. By the way, could you come here, please? No, no, no. Would you please? I'm asking. Seriously, I know you don't. Come here. We're gonna have a fight here. Don't we, don't we pray to communicate? Yeah, I want to go there. But before we do, I want. Can you show everybody? I'd like prayers for. Can you just show? Oh. I have a broken. Oh. I have a broken wrist. Oh, you can't get it in there. She. You hit it that hard. She fell. Yeah, right. She fell a couple of days ago, and and she's got a cast in her hand. So, I'm just asking for prayers for Suzanne. Oh, absolutely. Um, David, you want to elaborate on that? I think you're right on. I could, but. Well, well, I always, I always thought of prayer as a communicating. Just like you would communicate with your wife or a friend or something else, if you don't say anything, how can you can can, can you convey any thoughts, make any requests, give any thanksgiving? If you don't communicate, and prayer is that medium in my mind's eye, communicating. Yep. I want to be careful here because I <laughs> trying try to be because it seems to me my my wife was flirting with something Manichaean here in predestination that God already knows before it, I didn't I think you got that in my laugh um, I want to I want to put this a little bit differently because I'm I'm I am so skeptical about going there and I think that's what I've been saying all along you know that Catholics are we're we're flirting if God sees the present that you know fully in a way we don't. I'm. I'm not sure. I. I can't safely say he. God knows before we, but I can say this. Um, and remember, one of the things we're not talking about, we've not been talking about, is Christ, because in the way that Boethius is, this is so amazing to me that we're even talking about these things. You guys are really amazing. According to Boethius, we've got these two time dimensions. Um, the the perpetuity. And eternity, right? Timeless moments and all present. So God doesn't foreknow; He sees what is. Um, the whole question about the future to me is—it's just a difficult thing. But He sees. So His seeing something does not predestine it. Um, part of my answer to to your question Connie because I think it's a profound one and it's it's picking up with Suzanne but I'm a little bit nervous to say he knows before because I want to say this two things one is Christ entered time so that that separation between um, perpetuity, perpetuity and, eternity. and eternity closes he, he enters time and brings eternity into our realm he says again and again, in me you see the Father. The Son of Man has no place. This is not his home. He's come to, to, bring, to bring something divine into our nature because by ourselves we cannot redeem ourselves. 
We're too given to our sins. Without Christ, we're gone. So he came, went to a cross, revealed the Father, his own love, calls us back. So something happens when he comes because he says, do justice. He did his Father's will. He, he does not do away with justice. He says, be just. But he also says, bring a divine mercy to what you do. Something from God. So we're asked to bring justice and love together, the law and mercy together, the way Christ did. That's our call. I don't believe that's an easy burden. But he, he brought the divine in and asked us to follow him. If I, if I take Boethius's discussion on for, or knowledge, and I, I do take it pretty seriously, and think about prayer, I think about it more along the line of what um, David is saying. <laughs> Follow me for a minute, you guys. I'm sorry. The Word is Christ. He is the Word. The Word. The Word. You know that my own attitude towards words is not like most people. I believe that using a word, you are going to may laugh at this, using a word takes us in the direction of the Incarnation towards Christ. People who won't use, and I'm not talking about people who are incapable, I'm talking Gnostics, the intellectuals who think words are not good. People who believe that way are implicitly denying, in my mind, the incarnation, the word. Because I believe all goodness moves towards the word. It takes a word, that form. When we, when we offer prayers, we're, we're trying to find words to express a love that's obscure in us. And the giving of words to them gets us one step closer to the Word. It's Christ's love unfolding in time. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable with going, God already knows. I, I, I'm just, I've got questions about that. What I do believe is when we do that, exactly what we've been saying, He knows. It's absolutely crucial that we do that, that we give a Word, because I, I'm assuming everybody knows this, when we speak a word, that thing becomes more real to us. We're, we're incarnate creatures. We're not angels. It's absolutely crucial that we speak because we're so obscure. Our inner life is so obscure to us. One of the reasons I've been taking this seriously for you guys is you know my love of poetry. Poetry helps us to go into that obscure interior so we can learn to see ourselves more clearly. Why are we doing it? When we start Dante, we're not going to do him tonight, when we start Dante next week, we're going to go into hell. We're going to see sin in ourselves, in all of its ugly grotesqueness. And Dante, St. Thomas, the church, all says the same thing. We can't begin to be saved if we don't take a serious look at who we are. The call of the gospel, repent. Receive Christ, go on. The first act is, how, why would we go to Christ unless we were repenting? The people who don't believe they should repent have no reason to go to him. We go to him because we know there's something wrong with us. We've been asked to repent. You know, we go to confession. We take communion. So I believe that prayer is absolutely essential because when we speak those prayers, those words make us more real. We are one with our loves, unfolding in time, in the mystery of time. Every week our prayers are different, or, or often they're different. 
I mean, at least for me, I'm speaking for myself, one of the blessings of being with you guys in this class is Suzanne and I have been on, God, honored. I'm not saying that lightly. We, God, we have been honored to be a part of your prayer life. God, if we didn't have your words, how we have it? A form of communion takes place in the present, in this moment. Remember, not a past, not a future, now. In the present moment, it's that moment that we're one most with God. When you say your prayers, I feel blessed. So, I'm, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with David that if something happens in a communion, that when we speak a word, we become real, more real with it by speaking it. It's, we could be demonstrators. You know, we could be the revolutionaries um, throwing the tea overboard and taking rivals against England. I would have been there with them. Right now, I happen to feel if, if there were a revolution going on, I'm not told Suzanne this the other night, I would pick up a gun. and, and that's We don't have guns in my house. I was in the Marines. We have never had a gun. I'm so close to, if, if we had a revolution right now, this old man <laughs> would have a gun. I would be on the front lines. Anyway, so much. I 100% believe in prayer, but sometimes people will, will ask me, well, why do we even pray? So now I know what to tell them. That was really awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Connie. All you guys for what you do. All you guys. Okay, um, we were. I have to say, what you said, I so uh, what you said about prayer to me also goes over the sacrament of reconciliation. Uh, yep. The Lord gave us that sacrament. I, I think that part of it is because our contrition becomes so much more real right. when we put yep. our sins yep. into words and tell Yep. Yeah, absolutely agree, Mike. Absolutely agree. Um, well, I managed to do it again. Um, we didn't get to the work we were supposed to get to. <laughs> that just means we've got Dante ahead. I sent uh, I sent a couple of texts to you guys. One of them was on Boethius and one of them was on Dante. Go into the our blog, go to the Christian Middle Ages to Dante, and go to, the, I think, the Comedy, I'm not sure. But look for the Inferno. And in the Inferno, you'll see that first um, text I gave you. I think it'll help. It's just a, a sort of overview. Next week when we meet, I will, I will go over the historical background, the context, just to give you a sense of what's going on. An amazing thing is happening. Let me, let me just leave with this. I believe that, so historically, we had Athens and then Rome, and then we're into the modern world in one sense. And I... Um, Anybody who knows anything about anything would know that something happened in Athens. That this principle of self-rule and reason, that men could reason for themselves, was introduced into the world in the West in a way that was not true anywhere else. Not China, not Asia, not Africa, not anywhere. That something happened in Athens that made it possible for human beings to understand how important freedom was and self-rule. You know my own beliefs. That I, my own belief is the origins of that are Homer, the poets. 
Homer and then Virgil. Something happens in Athens that, um, that becomes a principle of life, that people dedicate themselves to self-rule. They're not going to be ruled by the Persians who fought, you know, whom they fought with, or Babylon, or Egypt, or any of those other cities. They're not going to be slaves. That, that there's this dignity to our human nature that we become conscious of in Athens. When we get to Rome, we've done this now with Homer and Virgil, when we get to Rome, we discover that there's this entity called the city. So it's not just the individual anymore, it's not Achilles, it's not just marriages, Odysseus and Penelope, it's the community that part of who we are depends on a larger world than our own, and it's crucial for us to participate in it. And the nature of that community um, when Rome came into existence was that it didn't matter what a man's intelligence was or his excellence or his skills, it mattered that he was a man. So it didn't matter whether he was rich or poor or educated, the fact that he was a man meant that he was worth dying for. We're already on the way to the cross. Does everybody see that? Christ didn't die for smart people or Greeks or Turks or blacks or whites. He died for everybody. So Rome is taking us that much closer to Christ in the New Jerusalem. Is everybody following me? So something's happening in the West that af affects the way we look at each other and our political systems. Okay? Now that's the way it is. The so Rome carries us into the Middle Ages, Byzantium. I'll, we'll get to that next week. But in the Middle Ages, in this conflict between church and state, emerges this thing called the commercial republic, the commune, this burger republic in which people were not tied to the emperor, to the state, not tied to the pope, the church. They were free, independent, like Boethius, that the political ground was human dignity, self-rule, that, that if people could be left to rule themselves, um, the community would benefit everybody. That principle is introduced exactly at the time Dante's writing. So what's happening at the time Dante is, is writing is the emergence of what we know today as the commercial republic. America is a commercial republic. Its foundings, its Principles are Athens and Rome and Dante's Florence. So when we enter into Dante's Divine Comedy next week, we're going to get the sharpest critique of the commercial republic, in my mind, that's ever been given. So we're actually going to be looking at our world because the foundings of it, the beginnings of it, were there. So it's not just a story about a guy you know, going down into hell and up purgatory. It's, it is, but it's also a story about a, a man who's entering a political world who shaped our own world. So in that sense, it's prophetic. It's showing us the modern world and, and leaving a Christian worldview and entering into the modern world. Shakespeare will just follow him and we're into the modern world completely. But the world that Dante is revealing to us is the world of the commercial republic. It's our world. So there's going to be a lot there. There's a lot there. So enjoy your reading. Um, um, I didn't get to Divine Comedy until I was in graduate school. I think I've told you all this story that 
I had already been a, an English major at Berkeley, it's where Suzanne and I met, and um, um, by circumstance, I don't want to go into the story, but we ended up at UD, University of Dallas here in the graduate program, and, and I was reading the works I never read when I was an English major at Berkeley, because as an English major, you don't read Homer, which is Greek, you don't read Virgil, which is Latin, you don't read the Divine Comedy, which is Italian, they're off in the foreign language departments. And I, I just think how stupid that is because they're the basis for all other works of literature. Anyway, we were, we were reading, and those of us in the graduate program used to do a lot of talking with each other because we really enjoyed our work together. I was sitting to, next to a young man who was a, 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 you know, in the graduate program with me. He was an English major. The two of us were reading the Divine Comedy, and he was saying, he was just reading the Divine Comedy, and he was terrified. This is a really intelligent, right? In fact, right now he's the president of Wyoming Catholic College. He's the president of that school. He's a very, very bright young man. I don't know young anymore, but he's not young anymore. We were sitting next to each other, and he said, I'm terrified. <laughs> it was terrifying for him to think about where some of his relatives were. <laughs> Reading the Inferno, you might want to have some wine, or you might want to have a friend nearby. That's all I can say. Okay? Okay, you guys, um, it was good to see you all. Um, let's keep each other in our prayers, can we? And um, you all behave. Amanda, I hope we see you again. I plan to come every week. I, whatever you do, I want you to change the position of your, because all we got is oh, the top of your beard. <laughs> anyway. I'm sitting in my lap, that's why you're probably looking at Anyway, um, you all have a good week. Um, be careful. Be, the virus is is spiking, so all of you take real care, will you? I mean, it just, danger's all around us today, all around us. So, anyway, have a good week, okay? Week is Thanksgiving. Thank you. Yep. You have a good week. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a good week. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Thanks. Leave. You. you got him. Yeah, both of them got. Mm -hmm.